And welcome to tonight, 7.30, Robert Gott talking murder with Jock Sarong. Um, free event, refreshments included. It's so lovely, Bob Gott, to have you in Port Ferry again and thank you for coming down. Oh. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, I love this town. I absolutely love this town. I was just thinking then it's when we were talking. It's very dark and it's very creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and but I love it. Seriously, if when you lot. come from the city... People always say, you know, you live in Brunswick, that's got to be dangerous. No. When, you, when I walk here down the streets after 8pm, it what? is so scary. What's remotely dangerous about this town? It, they're, 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 it is like a neutron bomb has gone off and all the furniture is intact, but there are no people. Just the soughing of wind in the trees and ghosts. You do feel, I feel... I don't even believe in ghosts until I come to Port Ferry. It's like seriously were, dark and spooky. And you were I very welcome it. here until you came up with that idea. <laughs> now you're not. Uh, Bob Gott is um, the writer's writer, is, is what everyone likes to call him. Um, Bob has been twi- twice shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award. Yeah, but I've never won it. Uh, uh, so you say <laughs> that, but you are sort of the patron saint of the Ned Kelly Award. And Bob is somebody who is enormously well-versed in literature of all kinds, um, who's got a quote for everything from the classics. He's a man who carries elegant pens. He drinks scotch. He gets upset <laughs> about misplaced apostrophes. Oh, He's yeah. one of those lovely literate oh, people yeah. who you just want to collapse in an armchair with, as we are doing. Separate armchairs, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> and have a chat with. Um, Moleskin Notebooks. We'll come to this in a moment, but... One of the, the most int- no one of the interesting things about Robert Gott and the way that he writes is that he writes in moleskin notebooks in longhand, um, and he writes one draft, and that draft becomes a typewritten manuscript, which goes straight to the publisher. and And for the rest of us who toil away on word processes, that's almost unbelievable. I don't understand word processes for the writing process. I don't know. There may be writers here, and I, I simply. I don't understand it. I love the uh, fluidity of the hand and a pen, or in my case, a mechanical pencil, but a a good one. I love that process. And I find the staccato, that process, quite interrupting of my thought processes. I, I I don't know if other people feel that way or not. There's just something... Mellifluous isn't the right word because that's to do with sound, but I don't know what the right adjective is for the fluidity of a hand movement. And I love that. And I know that's probably some kind of compulsive disorder. Is, is there a tiny pleasure in looking back over the page when you've written it and, and seeing all that flowing handwriting? Is oh, that satisfying? Yes, of, of, of course there is, yes. Yeah. 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 And does the handwriting move at the speed of your thoughts? Yes. Not Whereas my, ty- my typing doesn't. Yeah. But what about mistakes? Aren't there, aren't there crossings out and changes of mind? And that, that to me is what word processes are for. Mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> See, Jock, this is so <laughs> There are mistakes, but they're very, very minor, and I just oh. cross them out mm. neatly. But I've never really understood this idea about um, writer's block. Right. I've never bought the idea of writer's block. Because you don't hear of carpenter's block. No. Or plumber's block. Butcher's block. Well, I guess you do hear of butcher's block and plumber's block. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, I'm always annoyed 
but not annoyed, but sceptical of writers who, at writers' festivals, for example, will sit up on the stage and they will tell the audience that this book, the writing of this book, practically killed them. It was so painful and so difficult. And I just think, well, do something else. <laughs> do something else. Are we, we are supposed to read your book and be moved by the fact that you had trouble extruding it from your mind. Hmm. No. No, I can understand that. You, on the other hand, have written somewhere approaching 100 books. Yes. And you're only in your late 30s. <laughs> yes, double how? that job. <laughs> how is that possible? Can you explain how you've written nearly 100 books? Yeah, well, in the early days of my writing career, I wrote a lot of non-fiction. Now, when you're trying to earn a living from writing in Australia, writing fiction doesn't really do it. But I was commissioned to write a whole lot of non-fiction books for the school market by Heinemann and Pan Macmillan and that, that sort of um, educational publisher. And they, they weren't long books, but they were colourful books. They were books that kids used to go to to complete projects and now they just go to Google because librarians in schools no longer buy books. The most depressing thing that's happened since the internet is that school librarians, especially primary school librarians, are stripping their libraries of books and they're replacing them with screens. And so a kid, for example, who's given a project on, say, uh, I don't know, Indonesia, once upon a time that kid would go to the library and he or she would borrow my book on Indonesia because I'd done all the filtering and made it acceptable, uh, accessible to a, a kid in grade four or, or grade five and it would have lots of nice coloured pictures and... Now, the kid goes to Google and types in Indonesia, downloads the Wikipedia entry and hands that in. And I think that is utterly depressing. It is. But isn't the flip side of that that libraries have become places of meeting and discussion and they've become social hubs where everything else has a price and has a commercial motive? This is somewhere where... You John, the two... I know there's nothing in it for us. The two ugliest words in the English language are social hub. <laughs> You'd have to be such an isolationist to say that. <laughs> um, you wrote a book on Tina Arena. I did. I wrote the very first biography of Tina Arena in a hardback, white, clean, white clean edition. Does that involve, are you sitting in an interview room with no, Tina? No, it was all done over the phone. Okay. And a lot of it was done through her first husband from whom she is now very, very um, unpleasantly estranged. Okay. But that was a very long time ago and it was for kids so there's no drug, sex, rock and roll. It was a hagiographic celebration of Tina's career and life yes. which is why she was Through happy. the eyes of her estranged ex-husband. Largely because he was also her manager. Right. So there was nothing controversial in it. There was never meant to be anything controversial in it. It was again a book that a grade six kid would go to the library and borrow and read about Tina Arena who was yes. quite a big star yep. at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and other things, topics that, that perhaps um, you came to as a novice and you were teaching yourself about while you were writing the book? No. <laughs> <laughs> did you write a book on rugby league? I did. I, wrote, I was commissioned to write a whole series of books on sport. Now, if you, if you know me, you know that's just completely and utterly bizarre. <laughs> so I wrote a book on Australian rules, rugby league, rugby union and soccer. And then I was commissioned to write 
a series of biographies of rugby league players. But for this, this was for kids again, so they had to choose players who either hadn't been or weren't likely to be charged with rape. And in league, that's not that easy. <laughs> so they chose half a dozen players and, and I just talked squeaky to them. Squeaky clean and ones. The squeaky clean ones. And they were, they were really, really, you know, nice, nice chaps. But I know nothing, I, I remember nothing about it. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning as an income stream, yep. every book that you put in a school library yes. returns a tiny royalty via the ELR, PLRs. Yes. There's this thing in Australia that, that um, we have, which we borrowed from Britain, thank God, called the public lending right and the education lending right. And if you produce a book and it's in a public library, you get a tiny compensation for the fact that it's in a public library. Because if it's in a public library, it's not being bought and so you're not getting a royalty. And so, as you know, Jock, um, the public lending right is for books that are in public libraries and the education lending right is for books that are in school, university and public libraries. And you get a small amount. And if you've written a large enough number of books... Like 100? A, yes, it's a reasonable income and it allowed me to leave teaching, which I loved. I loved teaching. But I couldn't both teach and write. But does the, the ELR, PLR, I genuinely don't know the answer to this, mm -hmm. is it triggered every time someone borrows no, the book? No, it's not. No. So I can't just keep borrowing it and putting it back in and borrowing it. No. <laughs> it won't work. No, no. Okay. No, it's triggered simply by the presence of a book in a library. Oh, okay. And as the libraries are shutting down, the ELR and the PLR is going down radically. Right. As the books are being delisted or decommissioned or de... Um, Dewied. Dewied. De de dewied. Yeah. <laughs> Undewied. Yeah. <laughs> um, perhaps zeroing in a little on what we're actually here for, mm -hmm. there are two series of novels that you've been writing over the last 15 years or so. Yep. One um, which we might call the Murders series. Yep. That's this series. Yes. And my notes tell me that this started with the Holiday Murders in 2013. Yep. Not so long ago. Port Ferry Murders was 2015. Yep. And here we are in um, what should be spring, but sort of turned into summer on Sunday and then became winter again this morning, and you're up to the autumn murders. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, perhaps the way we should start this, can you give us an idea of the premise of the entire series, and then we'll work our way up towards the well, autumn murders? Yes. I suppose the best thing to do would be to talk about the history of this series, because I write another series with a, with a what Shane Maloney called a dickhead hero, which is true. It's a comic series and it's set in Australia in the 1940s. And they're crime novels, but they're comedy. They're sort of black, blackly comic crime novels. And Will Power is an incompetent actor and an incompetent detective. He's just an incompetent human being. And everything is told through his voice, which I find amusing. And after my third Will Power novel, my I submitted the fourth Will Power novel and my publisher ceased to find it amusing. And so he said, um, well, I'm not accepting this manuscript. Um, could you write something much more serious and much darker? And because I am essentially a lazy person, I'd already written the fourth wheel power A lazy novel. person who wrote 100 books. Yeah, but that's, you know, it's not coal mining, Jock. It's, it's you know... Um, I decided that I would I would set this the serious book in the 1940s as well and mine the plot of the fourth wheel power that had been rejected and simply turn it into a darker book. 
And I understand why my publisher rejected it because The Holiday Murders deals with a really horrible and disturbing part of Australian history which had no place in a comedy and I can't believe now that I thought it did because I'm looking at um, uh, a period in Australian history when in Australia there were actually Nazi or National Socialist sympathisers and they're not sort of pretend, they are actually National Socialists in, in the 1930s and 40s and I didn't really know about uh, this group, but um, I'd use them as a kind of comic foil in the willpower novel, and I see now that was such a mistake. And so, in the holiday murders, I explore that aspect of Australian history, and I created a new set of characters set in the um, homicide department of the Victoria Police. And just serendipitously, the homicide department of Victoria Police only became a discrete unit in 1943, which was perfect because that's when the Will Power novels are set. So I was able to transfer that across and create a brand new set of characters who aren't dickheads, they're detectives and deal with those sorts of so hardcore social issues. Um, just to stop you for a second there, so you came out of the Will Power series yep. with these national socialists because they weren't a topic to be laughing at. No. Is there a limit? You know, people like Mel Brooks have made jokes about the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And, and Taika Waititi has just released a film just recently along those lines. Is it the fact that some things are inherently not funny and shouldn't be laughed at, or did it just not feel comfortable as a writer? I just don't think I did it well enough to make it work because I was dealing with the... Essentially, I was dealing with the Holocaust that was in the background, and um, I don't know if you can make the Holocaust amusing. I can't. And so it seemed more natural to go dark and go deeply into that. And I did find it fascinating. And I was interested in, in the Melbourne police force too in the 1940s and the role of women. I wanted a woman in the police force. Full of women who sort of braved the early days of, of the formation of the squad. Yeah. And in Autumn Murders and indeed in the series, you've set up a number of characters who are these really strong, independent women. Mm -hmm. were, they, uh, were they hard to find in the archive as a researcher? Have you had to dream them up? Uh, no, there were strong, independent women. But, yeah, my books... I suppose are, what I mean is they'd be invisible, wouldn't they? Yes, they were. But my books are works of fiction. But um, I, I've spent my whole life surrounded by strong, independent women. And there, there were strong independent women in the 1940s who were battling against the world of, you know, the horrible world of men that, who, whom they moved among. And not all men, not at all. I mean, I don't mean to be misandrist or anything. It's not that. It's just that um, women did not achieve parity in any of the occupations. So one of my characters is a doctor. There were doctors. But in uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, for example, the female doctors were often just dispatched to the female ward. And they were dispatched to the female ward because men didn't want women looking at their bits. And often women didn't want women looking at their bits either. It was very strange. <laughs> very strange. Is a Latin term for bits? Well, yes. <laughs> if it's the male genitalia, the Latin word is vitria. Uh, sorry, virile, virilia is the Latin word. I for can't believe you can do that. <laughs> virilia is the Latin term for male genitals.
Aren't you glad you came? Uh, <laughs> Bob is in fact a doctor. This is a little known fact. Um, <laughs> yes. Would you perhaps like to describe your particular doctorate? Yes, I did a. I am not a. I am not a um, medical doctor, but as I always say, <laughs> if you have a rash, I'm interested in looking at it. <laughs> I can't cure it, but I can. De- I can describe it. <laughs> No, um, I've got a I've got a doctorate in uh, creative writing, and I did it cynically for the money, Jock. <laughs> I got a scholarship to do it, and so I did it. But I did it on a really interesting subject, which is the collective memory, and I'm fascinated by the idea of collective memory. And collective memory is when we, as a culture, decide that there are certain things upon which we agree about historical events or cultural events. And often those memories focus on something called a memory site, S-I-T-E. And the memory site can be a statue or it can be a moment in time. Ned Kelly, for example, we have a collective sense of who we think Ned Kelly is and what he represents. But that will probably have nothing to do with what really happened. And so uh, where where was the – where was he shot? Glen Rowan. So Glen Rowan would be called a memory site and around that site we gather certain things that we decide to believe as a group about Ned Kelly and there might be outliers who disagree with that general sense but that's kind of what a collective memory is and I was interested in in the notion that whenever I asked people when did Australia as a collective understand the reality of what had really happened in the concentration camps of Europe. And almost 100% of the time people will say, well, clearly at the end of the war, when the photographs started to appear and when we finally understood, oh, this had actually happened. But in fact, that's not the case. I, in my research, I discovered that the Holocaust, which is only a term that came in in the 1970s, that's not a term that anyone would have known in the 1940s. It was just not a term but we'll use it for convenience. Um, The Holocaust was being recorded in Australian newspapers from about 1942 on, all through the war. And it wasn't being reported discreetly, it was being reported quite uh, graphically. The massacres and everyone was... It was quite clear that it was the Jews who were being targeted. There were lots and lots of articles about the massacres of Jews in Poland and the massacres of Jews in Hungary. But there were no photographs attached to them. They were never on the front page. And they were always competing with the other war news, much of it to do with Australia. And so people, I think partly people couldn't quite accommodate, like words could not actually support what was being reported. And so people read it, passed over it. And then in 1945, in about August 1945, when Dachau and uh, Auschwitz were liberated, they started to actually reproduce photographs. They were photographs that would never be reproduced in Australian newspapers today. They were were those incredibly graphic photographs that we all know. know, Mountains of naked bodies and... um, uh, spectacles and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and uh, there were newsreels as well that started to appear in, in um, movie houses of bodies being uh, steamrolled and buried in trenches and 
But what was really, what I found really interesting was that before the photographs started to appear, the victims of the Holocaust were always identified as Jews. As soon as the photographs started to appear, underneath the photographs, when the evidence was absolutely there, the word Jew was not mentioned. They were anonymous. They were just simply bodies, victims, prisoners. And I was really interested in why that was the case. And I'm still not 100% sure why that is. But anyway, that was, that was the uh, cheery uh, subject of my PhD. So the interesting link between that and these novels is that there's that extraordinarily grim global backdrop mm. and yet locally there are these handfuls of isolated psychopaths yeah. and sociopaths yeah. who call themselves national socialists well they some of them actually were members of the national socialist party and and, and they're odd they're they're nasty people but by the same token there's something almost comical yes. about yeah. their antics because they were fringe there were two groups. There were groups who I call uh, drawing room Nazis who were interested in the aesthetics of Nazism, if you can use, if you can use that word. The Odinists. No, they, they were interested in the weird uh, religious component of Nazism. Right. Th that was a really weird group. There were a group of Nazis in Australia who believed that, that what we needed to do was to replace the Christian God who's a Jew, so Jesus has to go, and replace him with Odin, who was the great god of the mythic Aryans. And they were called Odinists. They were just nutters. But I think they're interesting because, um, because they're weird, <laughs> essentially. I think. But anyway, there were these drawing room Nazis who were interested in the aesthetics. And if anyone has looked at Nazi art, either paintings or sculpture, it is so boring and so anodyne and completely and utterly sexless the nudes in nazi art that, that all of the erotic potential of the human body has just been sucked out of them which is something you'd never say of the adventures of naked man for instance for example <laughs> thank you for bringing that up Chuck. my parents are very proud um yeah and so there were the drawing room nazis and they were just interested in the aesthetics of nazism and they were they were just lazy but uh, then there were what I call field Nazis, and they were they were just kind of psychotic people like ISIS today, just using a philosophy as an excuse to uh, hurt people and kill people. Um, Bob, I wanted to ask you to read a little passage oh. in a moment, but um, opening the book, opening my copy of The Autumn Murders reminds me of the dedication that Bob wrote in the front of it, which I should share with you, um, which says, Jock and Lily. <laughs> As you know, Jock, this is a delightful mix of the grotesque, the very, very unpleasant, and the merely unpleasant. Now, that's what I call entertainment. <laughs> Look, you get your money's worth in here. This is what I call peak corpse. <laughs> so there are a lot of dead bodies. <laughs> there are. In this book. There are. It's, yes, it is unpleasant. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. Um, to set the scene, we start this book with a little link to the southwest coast, given that um, the rest of the series has featured Port Ferry quite um, centrally. The start of the autumn murders is at Murnanes Bay, which, if you know your local geography, is just next door to Childers Cove, just east of Warrnambool. Um, a lovely 
picturesque, tranquil little cove in the coast with which Bob has done some awful, awful things. So I'm going to hand this to Bob. And if you would just follow the pencil marks. Oh, okay. Follow the pencil marks? From the top left. Oh, okay. Off you go. (laughs) All right. Um, This is my uh, continuing character who's a psychopath. Fancy that. (laughs) Fancy that. Uh, his name is George Starling and he first turns up in the Port Ferry murders and he is, he is an um, extremely unpleasant man who grew up in Mapunga. Does anyone know where Mapunga is? It's not far the other side of um, Warrnambool. Miranda. Hmm? Miranda's next door to Mapunga. Is it really? Is west of Mapunga East. I don't know. LAUGHTER I just put him in Mapunga because that's where my ex-partner used to live. (laughs) No, I'm still very close to Helen, so there's no... That's fine. Um, Okay, so his name is George Starling and he's come to this uh, Manane's Bay to prepare himself to take vengeance on on, on two characters, one called Joe Sable, who's a detective, and the other called Helen Lord, who is also a... She's a policewoman. So he's come to this bay. <clears throat> he'd taken off his shoes and socks when he'd reached the beach and they sat neatly beside him now alongside his suitcase, which had been an extravagant but essential purchase. He took off his suit coat and trousers and folded them into the suitcase. Despite the heat of the day, the breeze coming off the ocean had teeth and he left his shirt on while he stood for a moment and gathered his strength for what he intended to do. He would need a week after this and at the end of that week he'd be ready and implacable he removed his shirt and underwear and put them in the suitcase which he closed and placed against the rocky wall behind him among the items he'd unpacked he located a bottle of carbolic he again picked up the filleting knife he splashed the blade with carbolic and walked to the water's edge he paused there concentrating on the chill of the waves as they curled around his toes He followed the cold as it moved up his legs into his belly and across his chest. He put the blade against the skin under his eye and in one swift, fierce movement sliced open his flesh down past his nose to a point just below his mouth. He made no sound and for a moment he wondered if the edge of the knife had bitten. Blood began to pour over his chin and into the thick hair on his chest and a searing pain engulfed him still. He made no sound. He threw the knife behind him safely away from the tug of the waves and again opened the bottle of carbolic. He cupped some in his free hand and took it to his face. As it hit the open wound, he uttered a small sound. He recapped the bottle, stood it in the sand and walked into the ocean. The wound bled extravagantly into the stinging, salty water. George Starling floated on his back, tasting blood and brine as the southern ocean lapped over his ruined face. The pain now was intense and he began to slip into an ecstatic state. As the blood poured out of him, he wondered at his own strength and at his genius. The wound would heal with the help of seawater and carbolic and his face would be dramatically scarred. People would see and remember the scar. What they wouldn't see was the face behind it the face that Joe Sable and Helen Helen Lord had seen, the face that every copper in the state would be on the lookout for. How did you come up with that? 
well, you know, everyone likes a bit of comic writing chock. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a really I just thought it was a really good idea that if you know that your your face is going to be everywhere, yes. because in the previous book he is identified as as the, this uh, person, I thought, what's the best way for him to disguise himself? And I thought, if you slice open your face the way you do, and you have this really dramatic scar, especially during wartime, when people see such a scar, their first thought will be war wound. And so they will either look away or be discreet, but certainly not pay attention to the face behind it. That was just a simple idea. And a good one. Um, can we turn to the women, particularly Helen Lord and yeah. Clara Dawson? and the way that they then fit into the pursuit of George Starling. Well, I wanted to create a woman who was a who who was a policewoman. Now, because it's fiction, um, she gets seconded into the homicide department by the head of homicide whose name is Titus Lambert. And I named him Titus after a, I used to be a teacher and uh, I, I used to teach all, lots of the names in my books are weird, but they're all the names of people I used to teach, like Ptolemy. I taught at Ptolemy. Did you? Yeah, I did. How did the kids abbreviate it? Toll. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I taught a Ptolemy. I taught a um, Attila. Right. And his brother Genghis. <laughs> Truly. Were they quiet types? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Attila, actually, seriously, I think he did go and join um, ISIS. Good lord. Um, yeah. What were we saying? Yes, Helen and Clara. Oh, Helen and Clara, yes. Um, so uh, Helen is promoted because of the shortage of men in the police force because of the war. She is promoted completely unrealistically, but this is the meaning of fiction, into the homicide department or she's seconded into the homicide department uh, by this quite enlightened uh, head of homicide called Titus Lambert. And also I wanted to write two pol uh, characters who... Titus and his wife Maud are happily married and I wanted to present police people who were happily married because you get a bit tired of detective novels where the detective or the policeman or the, the uh, private inquiry agent is an alcoholic or riddled with drugs or, or having some issues or, or something. And I think, well, you know, there are some people who are happily married. My parents are in their 90s and they're still, well, married. <laughs> no, they're happily married. Are you offering an adjective? No, they're happily married. Um, moving from George Starling and his sort of uh, his, his criminal genius, yeah. one of the other things that you did in this book that I just love is the two hapless buff head cops. Yes, O'Dowd and and uh, Dunnett. 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 What a great name for a crooked cop. <laughs> Dunnett. <laughs> yeah, but it's also a small marsupial. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> like a bilby. That's yeah, a, kind of like yeah, a bilby. A potteroo. A, a dunart. Uh, oh, dunart. Yes. That's where the, yeah, yes. but dunart's fine. Yes. Like Sean Tan. Yeah. Dunart. <laughs> yes. Um, but there, there is a scene which I just love, and again, I'm going to ask you to read. I'm oh. sorry to do this to you. But a scene where Dunnett and O'Dowd decide to go around to the Lord's house. Yes. The Lord's house. Helen and <laughs> Roslord's house. Yes. And put the heavy on her, essentially. Yeah. And it all goes horribly wrong because she's very clever. Yes. Um, would you yeah, perhaps sure. indulge us? Sure. I, again, the pencil will take you there. Thank you. 
I, I should explain that also these books, the Port Ferry Murders especially, um, looks at the sectarian divide that really did rip apart Australian culture in the 1920s, 30s and 40s, right up into the 50s and 60s, I think. So uh, people here would remember that if you were a Catholic, you did not date a Protestant girl. There's no way you would marry a Protestant girl and and vice versa. So, and the tensions were absolutely real and they did divide they did divide families. And in the Victorian police force, the Masons were the enemy of Catholics. I you know, I went to a um, a Christian brothers school. And no, I wasn't. <laughs> um, and we were taught that Masons were, well, they were just, you know, the agents of the devil. And it was just absurd, just absurd. But in the Victorian police force, it was extremely um, uh, problematic and they, the fist fights would break out in the police gym in Russell Street between Masons and Catholics. Unbelievable. Just saying. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. So Dunnart and uh, O'Dowd have, have come to uh, Roslord's house, but they don't know it's Roslord's house. There. Anyway. Dunnart raised the knocker and looked at it for a moment before he used it to rap on the door. It was in the shape of a mythical creature, a phoenix perhaps, and had been polished to, an, with, to within an inch of its life. He knocked and stepped back. Try to look a little less shifty, Bob. A doubt had become used to Dunnart's frequent snide digs at his expense. He didn't like them, and he was storing them away as fuel, should he one day need to convert his current alliance with him into righteous opposition. There was no answer, so Dunnart knocked again. A muffled voice called, I'll get it, Mum. A reply, less muffled and just behind the door, told the, verse, the first voice to stay where she was. I'm closer, I'll get it. The door opened and Ros Lord stood before the two policemen. She was wearing an apron and her hair was pinned back away from her face. Dunnart and O'Dowd removed their hats. Yes, how can I help you? Dunnart produced his identification card and showed it to Ros Lord. Uh, Senior Sergeant Ron Dunnart, she said, and looked from the card to him and then to Bob O'Dowd, who also produced his card. May we come in? Dunnart asked. Perhaps you could tell me why you're here, she said. Dunnart was taken aback by this. Housekeepers in aprons weren't supposed to back chat. Keeping his temper under control, a measure Ros Lord noticed and which confirmed for her what she already suspected, that these were men who could not be trusted, he said, we have routine inquiries regarding a series of nasty burglaries in this area. He hoped the inclusion of the word nasty would give this biddy a fright. She said, we haven't been burgled, and I haven't heard of any burglaries in the area recently. Dunnart smiled. I think we know more about that than you would, Mrs... The question elicited no name from Ros Lord. <coughs> well, I haven't seen anything or heard anything, so I'm afraid I can't help you. Perhaps there's someone in the house we could talk to, O'Dowd asked. 
If anyone here had heard of someone being burgled, I can assure you it would have been the subject of conversation. So, no. There's no one else who can help you. If you'll excuse me, I have work to do. As she closed the door, each of the detectives was aware that she was committing their features to memory and each of them found this disconcerting. This had not gone to plan. Outside Lily's gate, Dunnart turned to take in the house. What a fucking bitch, he said. <laughs> that is a beautiful little exchange. <laughs> <sighs> okay, from there, can I take you to research methods? Yep. And we've talked about the way in which um, you did your PhD, which involved the Holocaust yep. and memory sites. Yep. Um, and national socialism here in Australia. Yep. Um, you've written extensively about the early homicide squad. And there's even a little passage in this book about freshwater chemistry. Yes. I, I completely can't believe you're across, but you are. Um, I can't believe people aren't across such things, Jock. <laughs> what was it? Hydrogen sulfide soils? Is that what you were doing? No, it, no, we can't give away. It's a, it's a serious, it's an important plot point. Oh, it is too. It is too. <laughs> okay, I'll stay away from it. However, that. it is to do with, with uh, gases that uh, are created in stagnant or polluted uh, river systems and in, in situations where there is a, a perfect storm at a particular time these gases can rise and they're highly, highly toxic. And the way in which this interacts with national socialism is obviously very important. <laughs> so it's got nothing to do with that. Um, but do, do, do people remember the Bogle Chandler murders? Yes. Well, that, that is now kind of accepted as the uh, possible explanation for that, that mysterious double death where the, 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 a, a, a person who was having an affair with... Um, a, a woman, or she was having an affair with him as well. Were they scientists? They were sci well, he was a scientist. Right. She was the wife of a scientist. They were both in the CSIRO. This was in the, was it the 1950s or 60s. I can't remember. Anyway, their, their deaths have always been a complete and utter mystery until um, a couple of scientists came up with this hydrogen sulfide solution that made perfect sense to me. Um, right, so the wider point about this, how do you find all these things and how do you instinctively stitch them together? Why did that particular phenomenon find its way into the novel and how did you know it was gold? I'm old. <laughs> you've it's just true, you just, you just acquire a little bit over a lifetime, as you know, you just acquire little bits of interesting information that you think that somehow you, you, they'll turn up in, in a novel somewhere. The chicken and egg thing, do you... Do you go looking for those things to service the plot or do you find them and then look for a home for them in the story? I don't find them. They're, they're already there, they're there. because, yeah. you know, if you've spent a lifetime reading, um, they're just there, little little nuggets that you might use. But, but I always look up Trove, uh, which is the National Library of Australia's uh, digitalisation of every newspaper in Australia from 18... I don't know, 30? Uh, earlier, 03? 1803 yeah. to the 1980s. And there, that's a great place to find bizarre murders and bizarre <laughs> ways to die. If that's how you pass your time. <laughs> <laughs> People die in the weirdest ways. Yes. They and, do. And they make books for you in doing <laughs> it. <laughs> People used to die in the weirdest ways before 
Uh, Thomas Crapper, for example, who did not invent the toilet, that's a myth, what he did do was uh, contribute to the uh, uh, invention of the S-Bend. Because prior to the S-Bend, people, uh, they, they put these brand new things called toilets in their houses and there are enormous build-ups of methane from the cesspit where the, the thing was being flushed away and great concentrations of methane would just come up uninterrupted into the toilet bowl and some bloke would sit on the toilet and light a cigar and boom. <laughs> and there were, <laughs> there were lots of deaths of people blowing themselves up on, on the toilet because they hadn't figured out a way of containing how do you keep the methane and the S-Bend did that. This is like the drummers in Spinal Tap spontaneously combusting. <laughs> yeah. It was a thing. Will it find its way into a book? Is this going to be the winter murders? <laughs> no, People no, blowing up on toilets? No, that's, not, no, that's a 19th century phenomenon. But people Does were it, always dying in cesspits. People would fall in to their own uh, cesspit. The board would break <laughs> oh and they'd, they'd fall in and they'd drown. That's awful. I know. Well, someone has to get them out. That's even worse. <laughs> Do all these esoteria, do, do they lead to fights with your editor? No. About no. keeping it in or they always stay No, in. my editor's very young and so um, it's, I have a responsibility to correct her <laughs> because, for example, um, one way to write, uh, writing historical fiction means that you've got to do research but a terrible historical novel is one where all of the research is obvious. It's all there on the page and you can see it all and that's just tedious. So the job of an historical novelist is to, <coughs> pardon me, to make the research absolutely invisible. And the way to do that is not to concentrate on the big picture. So my novels are set in World War II but there's not a whole lot about what's going on in the Pacific or in, in Europe because they're domestic situations and therefore the, res the historical research becomes real at the domestic level. And for example, well, this is an example of having to correct my, not correct my editor, educate my editor. Um, and fair enough, men did not have zips in Australia. They had a uh, button flies and they were called flies it was always the plural and in one of the books i think i got a correction saying correcting flies to fly and but she didn't know about the buttons and they were called flies and when the americans came in they had zips and australian women loved american trousers because the americans were elegant and the the profile uh was neat and Australian army uniforms were disgusting. They were thick, they were heavy, they were woolen, they had big bulky flies, they stank because they're difficult to wash. And American soldiers were all neat and they had, they had these beautiful zip flies. And here, women loved them. And I think, I don't know whether it was the way they looked or ease of access or what, but they did, <laughs> they did like them. And it's those sorts of tiny domestic details that help anchor mm. an historical novel and you let the reader do, do the rest, I think. Don't show too much of your research. Mm. <laughs> and what next? Is there uh, a winter murders? Yes. There, well, uh, I'm, I've nearly finished the sequel to that, to the autumn murders, and I was going to call it the winter murders, but I've discovered it all happened in May. Mm. So I may have to call it the May 
murders instead, mm-hmm. which isn't quite as good. But I think I'm going to have to. It's a bit late for the Paschal murders. Just to do that, yeah. And the next book is 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 um it's about religious uh, fundamentalism and um, the seductive nature of cults, and that that's based um, on something I grew up knowing that in the 1850s or 18 no 1860s in Melbourne in Nunawading there was a guy who called himself his name was Peter Fisher. And he called himself the Nunawading Messiah. And he managed to convince hundreds of people that he was Jesus Christ. And they paid him money and he said that if you believe in me, I will guarantee you immortal life. And of course, in the current life, not Will you, will you be stuck for eternity in Nunawading? In Nunawading. <laughs> the rest of your life is in Nunawading. <laughs> it seems a pretty crook deal to me. Anyway, as... As people who were following him started to die, well, they just simply didn't believe sufficiently. And um, it's unbelievable that, that people fell for this. And people are still falling for this. And so that, that's kind of... I've updated that and put that into the 1940s and it's an extremely unpleasant murder, series of murders that opens the May murders. Oh, excellent. And, and is it a continuation of the characters in Orphan yes. Murders? It yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Scheduled release date? Uh, May next year. <laughs> Maybe the May Murders. Yes. That seems um, right and proper. And while I've got you, what are you doing next week? Oh, yes. We're going to America. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> Could this you explain <coughs> Yeah, pardon me. This bizarre thing happened. A friend of ours who's a, who, who writes uh, also historical crime, um, Solari Gentle, her name is, uh, she writes a series with this uh, character called Roland Sinclair and she's written an astonishing 10, I think, out in the series. She had this idea, this bizarre idea, that four crime novelists should get together and, Jock, you're not actually really a crime novelist, but no, that's okay. Right. That's why you're explaining this, <laughs> yeah. not me. Um, four writers would get together and we would make an application, astonishingly, to the Australia Council to send us to America on a tour of states of America selling Australian crime fiction and selling our crime fiction, essentially. Which is why I never thought this was... We Neither you nor I thought this was ever going to get up. It's sort of like the Joe Hockeys of crime fiction. <laughs> How obnoxious. But we all got together and we did do uh, an application and it was a pretty good application. And bizarrely, the Australia Council said yes. And so Overland Magazine has closed down because <laughs> we got their money. <laughs> <laughs> I think. No, that's that's not true. Um, but – and we're going next next week and it's for two, two and a half weeks and we're appearing – uh, in New York, first of all, we have morning tea with the Consul General in Manhattan. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. You organise that? Yes. Um, uh, and then we're going to uh, Dallas because there's a con- huge convention there called Bouchercon. I had never heard of Bouchercon and it's been going for 50 years. And it's like a big Comic-Con thing that Americans do. You know, they go to these ghastly hotel convention centres and 150,000 people come. And we've got a panel there. In a state with open carry laws. In a state with, I'm so buying a gun. (laughs) (laughs) 
Open carry. I know you were in the supermarket. I fully expect to see people with guns on their hips in Dallas. It's such a strange, strange country. So you, you went and had us designed a logo which features... Oh, America is a blood splatter. <laughs> That's not remotely provocative in no, this context. No, but it looks really, really cool. It looks really cool. Oh, I wish I'd bought the... Um, you really should have, actually. Yeah. yeah. Now, Bob, I'm conscious of the time, everybody. We've been chatting and chatting, and I think we've gone an hour. But would anybody like to ask Bob a question while we've got him down here in Port Ferry among us? Or Jock. Um, but preferably Bob. Or Jock. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, I can just keep doing this, but Bob will hang around and sign books and have a glass of wine with us and um, 